Welcome to the Garden Angeles, where we talk about flowers, veggies, and all the best dirt. I'm Carol Michael from Indianapolis, Indiana. And I'm Dee Nash from Guthrie, Oklahoma. Good afternoon, Dee. Good afternoon, Carol. We didn't get to do our early morning podcast this time. It's almost dinner time, and I'm kind of hungry. Well, you're just going to have to hold tight. we got some gardening stuff to talk about. All righty. Let's get going. Well, first of all, you want to know what I did today? Of course you know I want to know what you did today. So a friend that I grew up next door to, his mother passed away, sadly, in December. She was 89, and she lived in an apartment, and he Mm -hmm. texted me and said, would you like the houseplants? And he listed off several houseplants. So I went this morning and picked up uh, six or seven different plants that are just gorgeous, and I'm very excited to have them. Okay, so I have a question about this. Um, first of all, how did he know that you love houseplants? Was it because of a newspaper article that you've done or your blog or what? Well, because he grew up next door to me and we've kept in contact, and he knows that I am the, I am the gardener of the family. He thought of me. <laughs> You're the plant whisperer. I also have his dad's old hoe. His dad passed away a few years ago, but I got his old hoe when they moved out of the neighborhood. Oh, precious. And I need to do a little bit more research. He gave me an African violet, and he said two things, and I'm like, I must protect this African violet and nourish it to the best of my ability. First, he told me that it used to be his grandfather's, so it's a very old plant. It's been in their wow. family for decades. And then he said it used to bloom all the time. He said it stopped blooming when my mother died a little over a month ago. It hasn't bloomed since. Well, that's not so unusual for African violets. You know, they have a time when they come into bloom and a time when they go out out of bloom. I love African violets, but I bet it just needs a little fertilizer and watering because no one's loved on it. I don't know. It's kind of different. So I'm going to love on it and give it some fertilizer in a little bit. I'm not right now. It's the middle of winter. But I'm going to make sure to take good care of that African violet. Yeah, I guess so. Don't get any water on its leaves. They don't really like that. You have to water under the leaves. Yeah, he, he's got it in a really nice container that puts the water kind of away from the leaves. Oh, nice. So I was excited. And that goes to my theory. When someone offers you an plants, old hoes, or old gardening books, the answer is always, yes, I'd be happy to take those. Exactly. Well, we would be happy to take those. Not everybody would be, but we would be happy to take those. First of all, before we get started on our actual topic, which you are leading right into, what was your favorite plant that you got from him today? Because I know you know what they were. Well, I do think my favorite is going to be that African violet. That is understandable. African violets are, oh, I think they're among the most beautiful little plants if they're well taken care of. True. And this one is not blooming, so I don't know the color of it. So I'll be anxious to see what color it is because I'm hoping that it'll bloom for me. I think it will. I have some and they bloom pretty reliably. They're they're actually pretty easy to take care of as long as you don't do certain things. Okay, so you led us right into our topic for today. Old gardening books. Yay! I love old gardening books. I get a little chill. Well, so first we're going to talk... With our flower topic, we're going to talk about some garden writers that mostly wrote about flowers, and we know who our favorite is. Say it yes. together. One, Ready? two, three. 
three, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Lawrence. Lawrence. We love her. Tell us a little bit about Elizabeth Lawrence to get us started. So Elizabeth Lawrence is why we're friends. Yes. That's the truth. Um, we both loved Elizabeth Lawrence. She was a Southern garden writer, and she wrote for the new. Didn't she write for the Charlotte Observer? It's been so long since I've researched her, but yes, the Charlotte Observer. Over 700 columns. So her columns have been gathered into various books, and that's how I started reading her, because although her information is for um, a more Southern state than mine, it's for North Carolina, mine is, um, I just take her advice, and then I move it up a month or back a month, depending on what it is, because we can grow the same plants. It's just that hers flower earlier and flower later. And also a few things aren't hardy here, but for the most part, we're both zone seven ish. So I love Elizabeth Lawrence. And also I love, well, I, I've got all of her books as you do you. I have all of her books. I have two signed books as well, which are rare. Yeah, I'm jealous of that. But, you know, whatever. <laughs> I don't have any signed ones. But we've both been to her garden. I've been twice, yes. And she has a classic pose standing at her garden gate, sort of welcoming you into the world of gardening. And we have both run up to that gate when we've been there and stood there and did the best uh, impersonation of Elizabeth welcoming, welcoming people to her garden and got our pictures taken we're going to find those and we're going to post those on Instagram. Yeah, because um, this is where Carol and I get competitive. She's been twice, but I got there first. And so it just about killed her when I got there before she did. So she had to go twice to make up for it. Well, I've gone on my way to the Outer Banks and, and um, that's the whole reason I know about Elizabeth Lawrence. I knew about her before I found her on the internet because I went to a little bookstore in Manio, North Carolina, and I'm just browsing through the books, and of course they have regional gardening books, and they had The Little Bulbs by Elizabeth Lawrence, and it was a gardening book, and so I bought it. But you had already read her before that. You just didn't know about that book. No, that's the first no. book you read was The Little Bulbs? The Little Bulbs, and I bought oh. it, I bought it um, in the late 1990s. Oh, see, I didn't realize that you went all the way to that all the way down there in the 1990s. Yeah, I probably started reading her in the late 80s, early 90s, and I started with um, Beautiful at All Seasons, which is a compilation of some of her newspaper articles. I didn't get the little bulbs until maybe five years ago. And really? I, that's one of my very favorite books is the little bulbs. Yeah, and I have that's one. I have two copies of that. I have the one that I bought. When I went to the Outer Banks, and I have then the signed copy that I found online. It was like the Holy Grail, yeah, and I so, ordered that up. So what made you like Elizabeth Lawrence? What, what was it about her? Because a lot of people give gardening advice. Why has she managed to make it past her time period? Because well, she's I think dead. Yeah, <laughs> I think there's, yeah, she died in, uh, I think, 1982, right around there. I think what makes Elizabeth Lawrence unique is because she wrote uh, in a style that's very readable, and she really liked to correspond with a lot of other gardeners, even outside of North Carolina. And um, I got into her with the, another book, um, The Garden in Winter. I don't know if that's the exact title, but she would talk about 
finding out when bulbs would bloom in, say, Cincinnati or North Carolina or Texas or Virginia. And so she corresponded with dozens, if not hundreds, of other gardeners talking about when do things bloom. So she was the inspiration for my garden blogger's Bloom Day post on my blog where we all blog about what's blooming on the 15th and then compare who's got blooms early, who's got blooms late. Yeah, Garden Bloggers Bloom Day is one of the uh, longest uh, longest running memes, garden memes on the blogosphere. And we have both said in other posts and when we talked together that she would have made a great blogger. If she had known about the internet before she died, she'd have been an amazing blogger. And I'm just grateful that I got to see her little garden. Her garden was tiny. I mean, by city standards, it wasn't tiny, but it was pretty small. And she thought, she felt like it was a laboratory. So she would just pull stuff in and out you know, if she loved something, it stayed. If it didn't, it, it left. And uh, I think I admire, I admire that. She also lived in Raleigh. We should say that she didn't. She moved from Raleigh to her other house later on. So, right? That's correct. That right? And she, yeah. she also, uh, we should mention that people can visit her garden. It's part of a, a Wing Haven, which is a foundation set up in Charlotte by neighbors of hers that are down the street who had a five-acre property and had planted it for basically drawing in all kinds of birds, and they called it Wing Haven. And they set up a foundation before they passed away. And then um, several years ago, the foundation, along with the Garden Conservancy, purchased Elizabeth Lawrence's garden from the, the owner at the time who had tried to maintain Lindy it. Wilson. Lindy Wilson. who had tried to maintain it. And so now, um, as much as you can maintain a garden that was a laboratory where plants are continually moving in and moving out, they have maintained that garden, and you can go visit it. Yeah, I have one, one piece of advice, though, that one plant that Elizabeth Lawrence loved that I absolutely despise. You want to hear which one it I is? I do. do you, can you guess? No. <laughs> it's the Bradford pear. Oh, yes. Can you believe it? The Bradford pear had just come out when she was doing her writing, and someone gave her some of them, and I think she had two, maybe three, uh, maybe, you know, right in there. And so she loved those trees because everybody thought the Bradford pear was going to be the most excellent tree ever. And now, of course, we know the Bradford pear is a problem tree, especially in the south and in my state. It's a problem because now up by Tulsa, it has now mixed with another type of pear, and so it's spread all over the forests, and it's done that in other parts of the United States, too. That's just one reason to hate the Bradford pear, but other, but other than that one plant, I would say her advice is still pretty spot on, you know? I would agree. And the, here, the Bradford pear is also a problem escaping into the woods, um, and what, what everybody thought was the end-all, be-all of spring-flowering trees, the Bradford pear is a real stinker in more ways than one because one yes it, it smells yeah. bad when it blooms it's pretty yeah, but it, it stinks like cat urine and then it just it's just wreaking havoc in some of the wooded areas around here right because it's mixed with that other pear tree they thought that it was going to be um like so many plants that we've introduced to the United States. They thought it was going to be sterile, but no, it's not sterile. So don't plant Bradford pears, people. We beg you. Just don't. They still sell them, and I don't understand why. Yeah, because they're just, I don't know, people making a dollar. Can't hardly stop them. We'll just call it, we'll call this little section of the uh, podcast Plant Rant. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) 
So I love so I love Elizabeth Lawrence, and I go back to the Outer Banks. I haven't been for several years, but I went another time about I don't know six or seven, maybe eight years ago, and I went into a different bookstore, and I found this little book called Plant Doctrine is Fun, and I bought it. How could you not buy that book? I had I mean, no really, idea. So I've got some of her books, too. I love the title this, of that one. This is a book. It turned out to be the autobiography of Cynthia Westcott, who was another garden writer of the same time period as Elizabeth Lawrence. And Cynthia Westcott was the first woman to get a Ph.D. in plant pathology from Cornell University. Whoop, whoop. Go her. I mean, you know, that wasn't easy to do when she did it either. No, and this was prior to World War II, and she couldn't get a job because she was a woman and the jobs were for men. So she hung up her shingle as a plant doctor, and she used to go around and basically take care of people's roses and other plants. And, you know, she used to tend roses for actresses like Helen Hayes on Long Island. Wow. So so where does Cynthia Westcott live? I can't remember. She lived in uh, New Jersey. New Jersey. Okay. So and Helen Hayes would fly her in to have her no, look she, at her roses. she'd drive from New Jersey to Long oh, Island. Oh, she drove. Well, I guess it's not that far. Okay. So, but she, um, in, the, in the fall, she would pack up her house, and she always had borders in her house, it seemed like, from her autobiography. And she'd get in a Model A Ford, and she would drive by herself, like, down to Florida and across the southern United States and into California, and she would do garden talks along the way and educate people. And she didn't have slides or anything because this is the 30s. <laughs> she would take big poster pictures and stuff, and she would stay with old college friends and anybody that graduated from Wellesley College, which is where she got her bachelor's. And, you know, I, I think about we get nervous if we go to the grocery store without our phone. She'd get in that car and just take off. Yeah, and she probably had her own tire patch kit and everything else because my grandmother was a rural postal carrier during that same time period, and she also had a, did you say it was a Model A or a Model T? I think it was a Model, Model A. I, I think, yeah, I think my gra- my grandmother had a Model A. And she would get stuck in ruts and all kinds of stuff, and she had her own patch kit and her own pump. So I'm sure that Cynthia did, too. And there's just something so, I don't know, I was going to say charming, but charming isn't the right word. Impressive. And something so impressive about women who just struck out and did stuff is, I'm impressed. And she would, on the, I think it was the second Sunday of June, she always had, always had a big open house in her garden where she grew roses to show people how they could grow roses. Now, her books are filled with information about the chemicals she used to grow roses that we would never use today. Right, um, because, yeah, <laughs> they're dangerous. We, but yeah. They're dangerous. And, uh, but I was really impressed with her, and I got to looking, and I, have an, I already had a book called The Gardener's Bug Book that she had written. Yes. And... and uh, the thing also impressed about me is she had this PhD, so she really knew her stuff, but she wrote in such a way that mere mortal gardeners like you and I could understand it. Well, good for her. Yes. I ha- doesn't I, She has several books, doesn't she? Because I have one or two. Yeah, she has um, a book on um, plant diseases, and she's got one on growing roses. I'm, I'm looking over towards my library. I should have pulled them off the shelf. But we'll put a picture, we'll put a stack of her books on Instagram. 
Yeah, we're going to put a stack of our favorite books on Instagram. And also, we'll list, we'll try to list these in the show notes too to help everybody out. But here's the thing on Cynthia Westcott, even though she understood about all of that plant doctoring, there's a lot of stuff that she suggests that we don't use anymore in gardens because we now know that when you kill the bad bugs, you kill the good bugs too. So. Right. You'll have to be careful. So you you may not be able to find all the products she used, and you don't want to. No, you do not want to use all those products. But anyway, those are two of probably dozens of writers we could talk about when it comes to flower <laughs> gardens. And I got one for, but we'll talk about her in the dirt section, okay? It sounds good. And I was going to say, if people like this particular podcast and this topic, we can periodically do old garden books as a topic like we can do it on well we have so many old gardening books we could talk about that for ages we could do modern ones too we love gardening so all right so let's move on to veggies shall we yes tell me about your vegetable garden book author d okay so i was looking through all of my old gardening books and i came across one that i still dearly love And it's by a man in Oklahoma. I'm trying to reach for it, but it won't come here. Okay. The name of it is A Very Small Farm. It has a charming illustration on the front of it, which I'm showing to Carol right now. It is charming. And it's by a a guy who is named William Paul Winchester. And he wrote this quite a while back. It's not an antique book, but he wrote it quite a while back. And it was published in Tulsa, Oklahoma. But you can still find it on Amazon and several other places. He wrote it in 96. I picked it up at my local bookstore, and when I'm in a bad mood, I read this book over and over again, which I hope Mr. Winchester appreciates. Um, He was the son of a Tulsa professor. In fact, if I remember right, he was in charge of the English department, which is why his name is William Paul Winchester, for one thing. And also, he writes with a lyrical style. And one of the things that Carol and I both like so very much are writers who write about gardening in a lyrical style. Anybody can give you the facts, but when you write about gardening and chickens, he has a farm. I think he still has this farm up by Tulsa. And when he got out of high school, he was a young man and he didn't want to go. He may have gone to college. I can't remember, but he built his own house by himself and he bought 25 acres of land And then he proceeded to keep two cows, um, a flock of chickens, which were buff Warpingtons, and that's the same kind of chickens I had, which is my favorite, one of my favorite chickens. And he would plant and feed himself on this 25 acres every year. And he also would sell milk and he made his own cheese. So he was quite the little homesteader. And I always admired him, but he writes so beautifully about homesteading. So here's a little quote from it. I sometimes think of Southwind Farm as a small ship outfitted and provisioned for a long voyage. The produce from my garden is so abundant, it's been five months since I was last at the grocery store, and then for so few items, I can still list them from memory. He reminds me a little bit of Laura Ingalls Wilder. I love that, and now I have a book that I have to go get. Yes, you need this book because it's a wonderful book. And if you can find an old hardback copy, it's even better, and it also has illustrations. I want like, that book. I know. Everybody wants this book. Once I talk about it, you watch. Its sales will go up. It's a wonderful, he's a wonderful writer. So who did you pick for veggies? For veggies, I picked a, a writer named Charles Dudley Warner. Oh, I know him. 
wrote a book in 1871 called My Summer in a Garden. It's and a wonderful he, book. It is. He's a neighbor of Mark Twain, and he writes about planting a garden. And I don't know. I just like it. And um, it's an old book. I have an original book from 1871, but you can get wow. nice reprints, and you can also get... Um, a free copy for your Kindle. And when I I do garden talks and stuff, I tell people, get this book to take on vacation and read on the beach. Yeah, it's it's a it's a very engaging book. Right. It takes a you gotta remember that he wrote it in eighteen seventy one, so it's written in a particular style and you have to, it takes a chapter or two, I think, to get used to the style and I would say it's a little Mark Twainish in its style just because it's from that same period of time, but um, it's really stood the test of time, if you ask me, for a book that's, what, almost 150 years old. Yeah, I guess but so. He he talked about um, the hoeing, and, you know, I have that hoe collection, but he talked about hoeing, and he wrote this when he talked about uh, working out in the garden. He says, I need not add that the care of a garden with this hoe becomes the merest pastime. I would not be without one for a single night. The only danger is that you may rather make an idol of the hoe and somewhat neglect your garden explaining it and fooling with it. Mm. And so I thought that was interesting, the way he talked about getting out there and you end up hoeing for hoeing's sake. Yeah, well, I can't say that that's ever happened to me, but I don't hoe for hoeing's sake. But I do sometimes weed by hand, and um, because of that, yeah, it's the same idea because it it's that passive. What is that called? Passive thought or something where you get involved in something so much that your brain your brain can rest, and so your hands are doing movement. You know, there's other things like that too. You get into a groove. You kind of just let go of everything else and you don't even have to think about what you're doing you're just out there being in the garden and he talked about getting into that state which is fun yeah it is fun it's a beautiful thing he also talked about the weed purslane have you had purslane in your garden are you kidding uh, i fight purslane all the time in my garden paths he calls it pusley and talks about it's a fat greasy terrible thing and he says it grows as if the devil is in it and he's got a whole chapter practically on fighting that weed and and it's funny because you and i both fight that weed ourselves still yes all the time 150 years i think you can eat it though (laughs) maybe we should start eating it (laughs) well you know whenever i talk about it somebody will pipe up and say you can eat purslane like, yeah, you can. Go right ahead. Um, but I tell people, if you want to eat that weed, I'd suggest you, you can actually buy seeds for per- purslane, which I'm not sure you'd want to, but grow some that's actually no. been, yeah, I'm not no, growing it. No, do not do that. That would be a disaster. Yeah. It grows as if the devil is in it. So that's my recommendation for vegetable gardening is My Summer in a Garden by Charles Dudley Warner, 1871. Oh, I love it. How nice. Okay, so now you're going to go on to your dirt. I don't know if I have any dirt today. I'm going to have to think about it. Well, I've got some dirt, and this just 
is an example of what can happen when you pick up an old gardening book. So I went to a local antique store and I saw this book called Gardening on Main Street by Buckner Hollingsworth. And so I picked okay, it up. Need, okay, is Buckner a woman or a man? Buckner is a woman. Okay, got it. And her friends call her Bucky. Oh, Bucky. And the book was written in 1968. Um, and I call it what it's part of my mid century modern collection. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> so anyway, so I read this book, and it's a really charming book about, you know, her garden, which is literally on Main Street in Windsor, Vermont, and her husband is an artist who works out of their basement, and just, you know, the passersby that come and visit, and just the things she's done in her garden, and she wrote a couple of other gardening books. So as per usual, when I find a new garden writer that I'd never heard of, I Googled her. And so I quickly found, through her husband actually, her on a website, and then I found out that her sister was a woman named Mary Kirk, and Mary Kirk had an extremely important role in history of Britain because she went to school with Wallace Simpson. And everybody knows that Wallace Simpson is the divorcee that King Edward VIII married and then or abdicated his throne and then of England and then married her. Well, in order for Wallace to get a divorce in Great Britain, she had to show that her husband, Mr. Simpson, had been unfaithful. Well, called upon her friend Mary Kirk, who had been a bridesmaid at the wedding, and Mary Kirk apparently they staged. Um, some sort of rendezvous with her husband Simpson showed uh, Mr. Simpson coming out of a hotel with Mary Kirk, who was married at the time to somebody else. Anyway, the whole thing just just sent me into a dive down into history, and I ended up not only uh, reading all of that book, but buying two more books by Buckner Hollingsworth, and reading a biography of Wallace Simpson to find out oh, more. Oh, good Lord. Okay, so I, I'm still trying to get this straight. Well, I, I don't have it straight. Uh, but what kind of friend do you have to be that you would be willing to stage something while you're married to someone, to this other woman's husband, so that she can get a divorce, so that she can marry the king, future king, who didn't well, become well, was only and the interesting thing is, Mary Kirk ended up marrying Wallace Simpson's ex-husband, I think. Oh, so that might be why she was willing to do it. The whole thing is a big mess. And so, so really, she had the hots for Wallace Simpson's husband. So she thought that she would kill two birds with one stone, help Wallace, and then help herself. Maybe. And then um, the... Uh, the Kirk family, and they're out of Baltimore, some members actually wrote a biography of Mary Kirk, which I would have read if the used copies had not been $75. Yeah, that seems a bit much. I mean, can her life really be that exciting? I don't know. I don't know, but it just, uh, I did read the entire biography of Wallace Simpson, and that that was eye-opening. But that just goes to show, you know, you kind of, 
pull this little book off a shelf in an antique mall, and the next thing you know, you're deep into this whole thing of this history. And you're down the rabbit hole, as it were. Down the rabbit hole. And there was another rabbit hole down there. Um, Buckner described this begonia she had and talked about how beautiful the flowers were. Yeah. And I looked online for a long time trying to find if that begonia still existed. And I think that it doesn't. I found references in old magazines from the early 1900s that it was prone to mildew and didn't survive well inside. (laughs) So it was probably a good thing it didn't survive. So I don't think it survived, but gosh, I wanted that plant. And it just, you know, plants just, varieties disappear for no particular reason. And except that maybe they weren't a good one after all. And so they just died out. Exactly. Sometimes we want things, and that reminds me of some, well, I was going to say some dirt. I guess it could be some dirt. Okay, so talking about plants that, you know, don't survive for whatever reason, here's my dirt. In roses, La France is considered the first hybrid tea, and I just had to have one. So I searched and searched and searched, got it, because then I wanted one. I wanted one of every type of rose there was, right? So I buy La France, and I grow it for about three to five years, and then I pluck that baby out of the ground. And you want to know why? Why? Because it shouldn't have survived. It had a weak neck, so the flowers always pointed down. The flowers were okay, but you can get just as good of flowers with other types of roses that are just as pretty. And on top of that, it was a black spot magnet. It got mildew. It was really all in all just a terrible rose. So sometimes plants don't survive because they just shouldn't. But at least you got to try. I did, and I enjoyed it. Well, no, I didn't. I didn't enjoy it. But anyway, I got to try. And there are other roses that I have tried that I've loved, which someday in a future podcast we will talk about. I just wanted to try that begonia one time. And you know what? Someday I, listen to this, I even wrote to the Begonia Society to ask if they had any idea if that rose still, or that rose, that begonia still existed. I never heard back. They thought, oh, we're we're not talking to this nut. (laughs) I'm surprised they didn't write you back because usually people in a society are totally obsessed with the plant and so they're willing to talk about it. But maybe, you know, maybe your email got lost somewhere because, hello, Begonia Uh, Society, can you get this, you know, begonia for Carol? I might write them again. Send them a link to the podcast. You could. And you can say, we talked about you on the podcast. Your ears are burning, Begonian Society. Well, is that okay. it for today? That is it for today. And uh, okay. as we said, if people like to hear about these old gardening books and the stories behind these old gardening books, send us an email at thegardenangelist at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook, The Garden Angelist. On Instagram, we're The Garden Angelist. On Twitter, we're Garden Angelist. And we're also on iTunes. If you like us on iTunes, we would love a thumbs up review, five stars. That gets us uh, noticed and we get more listeners. Exactly. And we always need more listeners. And that way we can come back and talk to you next week. And perhaps next week we might do an English edition of this particular podcast and talk about the English authors that mean a lot to us. Maybe. We'll see. That's true. All right. Well, that's it for today. See you later, Dee. All right. Bye-bye, Carol. Bye.